Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you were going to build a continent that was most susceptible to the impacts of human-caused climate change, it would be Australia. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Now, you might have noticed that I haven't had a climate scientist here on Wild for quite some time, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. One of which is I sense many of us are a little bit exhausted by the topic. We kind of feel we've won the client's science is not real battle and we need to rest the troops for a bit. Also, I guess there's AI and the nuclear threat and the threat of civil war and everything else. It's all jostling for our attention. But I figured I should return to the climate topic to get an update, and particularly as the debates go into new levels here in Australia. Now, we also got the alert that an El Nino weather pattern is set to hit sometime this year, and as early as July. This is the pattern that brings hot, dry, bushfiry conditions, and the forecasts being predicted are extremely dire. So, I decided to bring in the world's most experienced and vocal temperature guy, Dr. Michael E. Mann. Now, anyone in the climate space will have come across his work and followed his pushback against deniers, doomists, death threats. You might have come across his hockey stick graph. It shows the sharp rise in global temperatures since the industrial age. It was regarded back in 1999 as really planting the idea solidly on the planet for the first time that humans have caused all of this. Michael is also a Presidential Distinguished Professor of Earth and Environmental Science at the University of Pennsylvania, Director of the Penn Centre for Science, Sustainability and the Media, a Fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and serves on the Advisory Board of the Climate Mobilisation, which calls for World War II scale climate mobilisation as a means of rapidly reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, and he's a specialist in El Nino patterning. Michael has also released a new book, The New Climate War, and in this chat, we talk through how the old war, the one against denialism, has largely been won, but that a new war has only just begun. And in many ways, it's more nefarious and, yep, distracting, a theme that you will have noticed I'm exploring here and on my Substack. But I feel the real fight is one that is no longer confined to the climate debate. The fight is now across the board. There is now the one fight, and it's against 
distraction. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to Wild, Professor Michael Mann. It's an absolute joy to have you here. Uh, Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Look, it's a very interesting time here in Australia. It has been for some while. I think we're the canary down the coal mine in many ways in terms of showing the rest of the world what could happen in six to 12 months' time in your country, you know, (laughs) with advertisement. Um, And the climate debate is at a very interesting juncture. I'm sure you're on top of it because I know you were here during the Black Summer bushfires and the whole Scott Morrison stuff that was going on, you know, him in Hawaii, us burning to crisps over here. Remarkable. Yeah, I, I lived through it all. A great time to be alive. So I know that you're really quite on top of what's going on here. And of course, you're going to be here in a few weeks on tour with Think Inc. And I'll put the details for tickets in the show notes. I'd really love today to talk through some juicy stuff. A lot of the listeners listening today, they're certainly not deniers. Often, I'd say they're activists. They're certainly carrying around a keep cup when they go to get their coffee. And if they're not, what are you doing, listeners? And I've got to say, I've had a few climate experts on over the years, but I haven't had one on for a while, Michael, because I don't know what it is, but it's a topic that's hard to get a new sexy angle on, right? Like an activating angle. And, you know, we all fall into the trap of getting a little bit jaded, a bit exhausted by the fight. But you do have a new angle. You've got a book out called The New Climate War. That at least sounds fresh. <laughs> something it might give us something more to think about. And you're also the global sort of temperature guy, you know, who's been quoted for decades now and something of an El Nino expert. So what I'm going to do is get you to talk about what the new climate war is and also a little about what's happening with El Nino because it's about Australia, at least Well, certainly um, by the end of the year, if not earlier. So let's start with your new book, The New Climate War. And the old climate war, of course, was bogged down in denying the science, essentially. And that definitely got boring. And we kind of won it, really. I mean, I think denial is... Nature won it. Nature has the last word on these things, yeah. True. I think there's there's only a few dinosaurs out there um, still trying to deny the climate science or the climate reality. So what is the new climate war then? Yeah, so that's exactly right. I mean, you know, it wasn't, you know, it, it feels like it wasn't that long ago when, you know, we had Tony Abbott, you know, uh, a prime minister who was a climate change denier. And, you know, that's just not possible anymore. In fact, he was defeated, as we all know, by a climate uh, advocate. And Zali Stagel, who actually uh, defeated Tony Abbott in, in his own district and, and replaced him, uh, she's a, a teal independent. So sort of one of these centrists who now, you know, reflects, I think, the evolving sort of face of climate policy in Australia. It's now not just, you know, the Greens, or labor, uh, but it's even, you know, moderates, political moderates who recognize it doesn't matter what your politics are. Your politics don't care. Climate change doesn't care about your politics. It impacts all of us. And so I think that that sort of reflects the changing nature of the climate wars in Australia, that nobody's really debating whether it's happening right now, because Australians can see it, they can feel it, they've experienced it. In fact, I was there. I was there during the Black Summer, and it was really the first time that I felt I came face to face with the climate crisis. It was when I was on sabbatical down in Australia and literally saw it play out in real time right in front of me. And it had quite an impact on me on the way that I I view this as... Really? 
So, so, yeah. so it stopped being pure theory and it was really in your face. That's interesting that somebody... Literally in my face. I was choking on the smoke when I left, you know, the apartment I had rented in Sydney. And it was it was real. You know, you could see the destruction toll that it took on Australians. And sort of, I, I lived that lived through it with Australians over those several months and bonded with, with Australians because we went through that experience together. But you're now referring to a new climate war. There's a bunch of things going on behind the scenes. It's in many ways sort of more deceptive. It's a, it's a little harder to pick. You're looking at deflection. You're looking at division. You're looking at doom. I mean, explain deflection. How does sure. climate deflection work? Yeah, so denial doesn't cut it anymore, right? You know, the Tony Abbotts of the world, they, they can't deny it's happening. And so, you know, instead they've turned to this, you might call it a softer form of denialism, if you like, delayism, if you like. Okay, it's real, but it's not that big of a problem and we can just adapt to it. We just need to be more resilient. These sort of soothing words that sound like they promise action, but they're just an excuse for business as usual. So there are these other D words that come into it. If it isn't denial now, it's delay, it's deflection, it's division, it's doom mongering, all of these things that we're talking about here. Deflection, what it is, is, hey, you know, yeah, there's a problem, but you're the cause. It's not the fossil fuel industry. It's your personal lifestyle choices, your diet, your, you know, how you travel, do you fly, what do you eat? The carbon footprint um, concept introduced by BP, you know? BP, absolutely. Because you know what? They wanted us so caught up in looking at our own footprint that we failed to notice theirs. 70% of the carbon emissions comes from just 100 polluters. And so they want to make it about us to take the pressure off them, to take the pressure off of policies that will hurt their bottom line, that will regulate carbon emissions, that will Mm. put a price on carbon, that will do all these things that hurt their profits, but help us make this transition that we know we need to make away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. That's the new climate war. Distraction is the big thing, isn't it? Like, while ever we're distracted counting our personal carbon miles, we're not paying attention to what is happening elsewhere. And a a really big one that's caught my attention recently, and I need to write about it a little, I think, is is the whole renewal of plastic. So I think we're going to be bombarded pretty soon by a whole heap of plastic's great and it's just recyclable, don't worry about it, kind of campaigns because the fossil fuel industry, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, from what I understand, they're working out that there's not going to be as big a market for their fuels being used for energy. Oh, what else can we do? I know over here we can make plastic bottles. What else is made out of petroleum? Plastic, Mm -hmm. absolutely. So I'd warn listeners to be aware of that. I think we're going to be hit with a whole heap of, don't worry, plastic can be recyclable. We'll see Coca-Cola doing these great recycling schemes, you know, like it's 1980 again. And I think that's something that we've really got to be paying attention to. That's what they're going to be funneling their interest into. What about carbon credits and the offsetting stuff? That's a really big issue here in Australia at the moment, Michael. I'm sure you're you're quite on top of it. We're having a great debate. It's it's decent and civil at the moment. The Labor Party is trying to adjust the safeguard mechanism, which is a mechanism to, I guess, keep the big polluters that contribute, I think, about 28% of emissions um, to to a baseline level and anything over that, then they've got to pay um, and and offset. They pay essentially through 
carbon credits. The Greens are sort of saying, yeah, okay, we'll work with you on adjusting that and actually making it more of a penalising option, but we want you to stop approving new coal and gas mines or projects. And there's 119 in the pipeline here in Australia. It's massive, right? So I kind of see some of this debate around carbon credits as another distraction, right? Like, oh, don't worry about it. We can pollute. We're just going to go and pay somebody over here to do our recalculating our ledger rebalancing because it's really just ledger stuff right you know somebody over here is polluting oh we'll just kind of offset it over here by getting some trees planted which nobody has optics on well and those trees may very well go up in smoke you know and that next round of, of wildfires absolutely yeah you know in the book in the new climate war i show some tough love for the greens in places i have some good friends who are associated with the green party in australia and they've done some you know, some wonderful work. But they did actually at one point end up helping to prevent uh, the passage of the emissions trading scheme, you know, early on when it could have been implemented, but there was opposition from them. And they sort of ended up teaming up in a sense with the the liberals in opposing carbon pricing. They have a point here. (laughs) You know, the Greens Mm. really do have a point that we have to beware of clever accounting and, you know, labor, sure, the labor government, they're, they're showing some commitment now to meaningful climate action. But we have to be really careful to make sure that we're not allowing polluters to engage in clever accounting that allows them to continue to pollute by buying up credits that aren't really meaningful. And at a very basic level, here's the problem with carbon credits. You're planting trees, right? You know, reforesting or afforesting regions. And yeah, trees take up some carbon. They bury carbon in their root systems. But that happens on a pretty sort of rapid time scale. So the trees grow, they take up carbon, then they die and they give some of that carbon back up into the atmosphere. And so the residence time, the time that the carbon is sort of trapped in the ground and not in our atmosphere is timescales of decades, at most Mm. maybe a century. And that's no substitute for fossil fuels, which are carbon that has been buried beneath the ground for tens to hundreds of millions of years. And so that's when we burn that carbon and put it back into the atmosphere, we're really adding carbon to the system in a way that can't simply be offset by burying it for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years in vegetation and trees and forests. But also, Michael, there's also so much debate here in Australia. There was a whistleblower that exposed this, that um, something like 80%, I think, I think I've got that right somewhere between 70 and 90% anyway, of these carbon credits are phony because they're actually forests that were either going to be planted anyway. They're already there. (laughs) They're already there. Or there's just no way to actually follow whether the trees were indeed planted. Yeah, this has always been a problem with carbon credits. And there's been an attempt to provide better verification mechanisms, better policing and verification. But that's always going to be a problem with carbon credits. And you're never going to solve the problem that this is just bearing carbon for the short term, not the millions of years that they were buried as carbon fossil fuels. We're never going to be able to replace that carbon that was buried for millions of years beneath the ground. And so it's not an equal trade. 
carbon yeah. that was there for millions of years and suddenly in the atmosphere, you can't offset that by burying it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, even if you could verify it, even if you could ensure that that carbon really is being sequestered through actual new forests. And the bushfires in the Black Summer, during the Black Summer, there was more carbon that was put into the atmosphere by those bushfires then was produced by all of fossil fuel burning in Australia for that entire year. All of the, the gasoline, all of the electricity and power generated by coal and natural gas, all of that fossil fuel burning didn't even add up to as much carbon as got into the atmosphere during those wildfires. And again, you know, you can reforest and, and some of that carbon will then be taken up again as you reforest those areas that burn down. It's skimming the surface, isn't it? It's a highly problematic circular paradox that's not going to be solved with this accounting mechanism. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And it's just as you say, and if at the same time, we're building new fossil fuel infrastructure. We're allowing the fossil fuel industry to build new pipelines and build new coal-fired power plants. That means that we're taking more of that carbon out of the ground that was there for millions of years and pretending we can offset it by maybe burying some of it for 10 years or 20 years. I mean, one other thing I'll throw in there, Michael, I think literally there's not enough land on the planet to offset the amount of carbon emissions that need to be drawn down for us to get to that under 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures by 2100. So it would be taking land from food production land. So we can either starve or we can go and do something that's actually going to make a difference. That's something that has to be borne in mind. So yes, very much the carbon credit, carbon sequestering, offsetting argument, it's a distraction. It's required, but it should be only used for those impossible to kind of eliminate emissions that are invariably going to happen Absolutely. as we make the transition. Yeah, I mean, aviation, cement production, there's some sectors Steel, where it's going to take longer. Yeah. We'll do it. We will decarbonize those yeah. sectors. It's going to take a little longer. In the meantime, yeah, it, you know, in that case, carbon credits make, make sense. It makes sense, but, but not as a way of just not, not used as a crutch for continuing to, you know, extract and burn fossil fuels, which too often that's how it's being used. And that's why it's favored by polluters. They mm. love these sort of cheap carbon credits that aren't verifiable and are just, you know, it's, it's like a syntax to them. It's like an indulgence, you know, in the Middle Ages, the uh, Catholic Church's indulgence is the same idea. You can pay a little bit to continue to pollute. So it's a distraction, I think, is the lesson there for, yeah. for all of us listening. Well, it brings us to another one of the Ds um, in the new climate war, and that is this notion of division. And I find this really interesting. It's sort of an area I'm exploring at the moment, Michael, is the idea of chaos and yeah. distraction, division, all of that kind of thing as a technique. And it really is coming to the surface with the AI stuff, right? We're yeah. aware that there's a lot of vested interests in keeping us distracted and divided, like having yeah. arguments about things when the bigger debate is just being ignored. And I was horrified to read in your new book that there are these online bots and, and there's Russian interference that is yeah. stirring up arguments among climate activists so that we yeah. are caught up in, you know, side debates. And we're fighting with each other. We're fighting, We're fighting with each other, other rather than fighting the big issues. And I read that there were Russian trolls that attempted to undermine the carbon pricing debate in Australia. So it was alive and well here. 
Can you talk us through how that operates and and sure. what you discovered? Yeah, and you know, it's it, not really work that I've done, but I've followed the work that's been done by some investigative organizations that use various sort of forensic techniques where you can watch what's going on online. You can identify inauthentic behavior, you know, uh, armies of bots that are all sort of promoting a common uh, message, similar talking points. There are ways to identify inauthentic activity online and you can watch how it's used, for example, where, you know, some of them will come in and create an argument and that'll get real actual people to sort of join in and yeah. the melee ensues where suddenly there's this huge food fight and people are arguing with each other. It's creating discord. It's creating division. It's a distraction. And what all those people aren't doing is then taking the fight to the enemy, to the, the polluters, to the state actors. Um, Russia, Saudi Arabia are known to have engaged in this sort of online cyber warfare because you know, let's face it, they are fossil fuel states, they are petro states. Russia's by far their greatest asset is the fossil fuels that still lie beneath their ground. And they want to monetize that. And they realize that if we transition away from fossil fuels, then, you know, then they lose out. And so we can, in fact, understand some of the geopolitics, what's going on right now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the fact that they've been able to sort of use their fossil fuel production as a threat against other European nations that rely on their uh, their natural gas, for example. We can now understand how dangerous it is that we built up these petrostates. Mm. We built them up through our reliance on their fossil fuels. We're paying them for their fossil fuels. And what are they doing now with that power? They're interfering with our global politics in a way that is trying to maintain the status quo and block any action on climate. And we saw yeah. both Russia and Saudi Arabia do their best to, to sort of scuttle uh, the COP27, the, the latest climate proceedings in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, late last year. Yeah, can you actually talk through the details of that, how it affected COP27, what they actually did, what the techniques were used, and also what was done in Australia? And just for listeners yeah. who are not familiar with this, there are literally these bot factories in far-flung parts of Russia where their job is to just spew forth social media content that, as you say, ignites fires. It had a massive impact on two US elections, and I think yep. that's been categorically proven. But, yeah, yep. tell me about COP27. Tell me about how yep. it affected the carbon pricing debate here in Australia. Tell me how it's affecting the climate debate broadly. Yeah, so in the lead up to uh, COP27, you you saw, you know, all this inauthentic activity, all of a sudden climate denialism rearing its head, but also just sort of fractiousness and fighting and online conflict that sort of devolves into chaos and and prevents the possibility of a meaningful online engagement, uh, which is what we'd mm. like to see. We would like to see support being provided to our policymakers as they are negotiating uh, these very important uh, climate agreements. And instead, you've got this sort of devolves into discord and chaos. Have you got an example of that? Because I, you know, I was following yeah. the debate in the lead up to COP, COP27. And I'm just wondering, are there sort of any memes or tweets or things or phenomenon that were put out there that we might recognise? 
it often takes the form of the sort of red meat that stirs up conservatives, convincing them that climate change is, is just another way of big government to come in and take away your freedom. And all these scientists are getting rich off of these carbon credits. They're enriching themselves at your expense. So what you tend mm. to see is an attempt to try to find some of those fault lines in our partisan politics and drive a wedge into them and have that wedge be climate action. Did the Russian bots play a part in that? Absolutely. Like I said before, there's quite a bit of this sort of forensic work that shows that there are state actors, and you can see where the IP numbers uh, come from. And we know that a lot of this is, is tied to Russia, Russian uh, troll farms. We know that they're doing this, and they're doing this to create discord. And, and they do it at particular times. When Canada was uh, first considering a uh, carbon pricing, um, you suddenly saw this flood of these bots and troll armies attacking Canadian politicians who, who support climate action. One of the things that was remarkable, and, and we saw it in Australia too, we saw conservatives sort of use misogyny against the Gillard government, really there mm -hmm. were these uh, misogynistic attacks. And Tony Abbott himself engaged in misogynistic attacks because it just sort of fires up a certain part of the reptilian brain of a certain constituency. It gets them fired up. If you can create a cleavage along these natural political fault lines, things mm -hmm. like gender. And so you see that in Canada as well. That's what they want to do. They want to fire up their base. They don't have a majority of the population behind them. But what they do have is a small minority that can be very vocal and make a lot of noise. And they're trying to get them to do that. Yeah, I think of some examples that I see coming up all the time when there's an important climate debate happening internationally. So you see the World Economic Forum being accused of all kinds of conspiracies and oh, they sure. do the rounds for a couple of weeks. Bill Gates is a favourite. So there'll be all these conspiracy theories. He's going to install theories. a microchip in you if you, you know, aren't all careful. All of that. Yeah. yeah, because, of course, he's now engaged in the climate movement. He's written a book about it. So that'll all just come back up again. So there's some really common ones. Although I have to say... Just uh, Bill Gates, I, I don't actually find his prescription very constructive. He, he's all about we need a miracle. We need new technology, you know, throws cold water on existing renewable energy when, you know, look at what South Australia is doing. Right. I mean, we can we have the technology now. What we yeah. need is the political will to implement it. I know you've criticised yeah. um, Bill Gates' approach and I'm critical as well and I'm critical of the climate dudes that waltz on in wanting to get <laughs> right. excited about something. Right. That's, but, right. but, yes, in 20 years' time, yes, it might eventuate, but that's going to be too late because it's the next 10 years that really no, matters. Right. We've got to work with some of the boring, obvious solutions, you know. If, if you saw the – did you see the film uh, Don't Look Up? Uh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> the film, it's a thinly disguised, you know, obviously metaphor for the climate crisis, but they really come down on the sort of climate dudes, the billionaire technology people who come in and they think they can fix everything. And there's this one villainous character who's sort of an amalgamation of Bill Gates and Elon Musk and, you know, with some Jeff Bezos thrown in there as well. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a commentary on the dangers of thinking that some magic techno fix is going to, you know, yeah. get us out of the, this problem. And I won't give away the plot for those who haven't seen it. Uh, it doesn't but... end well for the, uh, <laughs> for the climate dudes, right? No, it does not. It does not. I'm going to be honest here. A lot of women do the groundwork climate activism 
and the climate education yep. and then these dudes, you yep. know, with their NFTs and their Bitcoin and their, <laughs> right. their startups where they're looking right. for seed funding roll on in and um, cause havoc. It's another form of distraction and deflection, isn't it, really? Yeah, there's, there's way too much of that. There's way too much of, uh, you know, thinking that somebody just because they gave us the Windows operating system you know, can mm. somehow fix the climate system. And by the way, if the climate, we screw up the climate, we can't just do a reboot, right? It doesn't work that way. And meanwhile, they'll build bunkers in New Zealand where they'll just be fine. Thank you very much. The rest of us can, <laughs> right. Right. can deal right. with the, uh, the fallout. While we're talking Russian interference, I know that in your book, you refer to the fact that they'll also create sort of divisive online arguments around lifestyle choices. For instance, sure. Veganism is often one that's thrown into the mix and it gets us fighting about, well, should we eat meat? Should we not be, you know, worrying about that because there are bigger, you know, so-called eggs to fry? Is that real, is it? Like I was really surprised to hear that because, again, when there's a big climate thing happening, I do notice this vegan versus not vegan stuff comes up and it's like I'm just trying to dig away through it to try to get to the real issue. So is that is that a technique as well that's used by these you know, Russian farms, Russian factories? It is, you know, it, and it's a form of deflection, right? Deflecting attention away from the main culprit here, which is fossil fuels towards diet. And it's true that a vegetarian diet is more carbon friendly, more climate friendly than a meat oriented diet. Mm, and you're vegan, vegan, right? I am pescatarian. So mm, okay. that, that's where we all sort of have to make our, our own choice. And we should, you know, and I feel uncomfortable trying to inflict my lifestyle choices on other people, right? And that's where it really gets into division. If we start carbon shaming because they chose to have children or because they eat a, a steak yeah. now and then, or they do fly to see grandma during the holidays, we all should do what we can within the constraints of our lives to minimize our environmental impact. And why wouldn't we do that? We, we should. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It sets a good example for other people. It makes us feel better about ourselves. And, but in the end, that's not going to solve the problem, right? And if we start shaming people over their choices, then that can actually lead to a backfire effect, where if you feel like you're under attack, you may just double down in those very behaviors that are being criticized. And so it's very dangerous. And there's there's quite a bit of careful sort of social science work that suggests that this does backfire, that this is not an effective way. A much more effective way is setting a good example and encouraging people to make carbon-friendly choices, but not shaming them. Yeah. Set a good example yourself and make sure that people understand that the most important thing that they can do has nothing to do with their individual lifestyle because they have to live within the system. We've got to change the system. And the only way we change the system is with policy and with politicians who are willing to put in place policies that will move us away from our reliance on fossil It's a feedback loop, of course. Our behaviour then shapes what policymakers and big business are going to do because they see us making the shift. But you're absolutely right. Particularly banks, superannuation companies, all of that kind of thing. Divestment is a really big piece in all of this. But speaking of that, the psychology is kind of divided on this idea of whether we focus on alarm getting people to rise into action because it's like this shit's scary versus 
this idea that alarm causes us to become paralysed into inaction. And so doomism, I think, is the final D in your book of the new climate wars, this idea that, well, look, it's just so bad, we can't do anything anyway, so let's just give up, you know. And I know that you cite David Wallace-Wells, who has been a guest on this podcast, as an example of a doomist. David's come around, he's come around. (laughs) He's come around. And the interview that I did with him probably about a year ago now is him acknowledging that, yep, it's not as bad as some of his worst-case scenarios were suggesting. And, of course, his whole essay, which became the book The Unhabitable Earth, is really a presentation of the worst-case scenarios. And I've got to say I responded to that when it was first published, I think in 2017, and I know a lot of people around me. It was the moment, the moment when they went, holy shit, this feels big and real. So I think the alarm does work for some people. It's it's a fair point. You know, we all respond differently to different stimuli and to different framings. And so it's important to realize some some people will, that'll be a wake-up call and and that's okay. Uh, On the other hand, some people, if it's presented as sort of a fait accompli, as there's nothing we can do, unstoppable feedback loops of methane. And there was some of that in the book. And if you focused on that part of the message of the book, you could come away thinking, we've already triggered unstoppable warming. You're talking about the Arctic permafrost, right? Like that was a big part of his argument is that it's a tipping point, which will then just have a domino effect. I mean, to be fair to David, he does say that he went through every criticism and I'm aware of the criticisms you made at the time and backed it. But his point is predominantly, this is the worst case scenario. These are potential scenarios. And I'm aware that scientists, and this is a real problem, isn't it, with the climate movement, scientists have to work with the facts as they stand right now. And, you know, he was presenting an argument of, of how bad it could get. And I know scientists can't enter that realm like, say, for instance, insurance companies can and economists can. Economists can speak that kind of um, that language and go into that space. Kind of another distraction, isn't it, in the climate movement that that war also goes you know, That's on. a valid argument that if you look at a worst case scenario um, and, you know, climate scientists do look at worst case scenarios. Um, you know, that's absolutely we try to understand what we call the the the, the, the heavy tail of the distribution, sort of in that bell curve, there's that far part of the curve where there's the possibility that things could be much worse than, you know, our sort of our central estimate. The, mm. the center of the curve is where we focus on, but we have to think about the far extremes of the curve too, those low probability but huge impact events. But it's important to distinguish between those and sort of unstoppable warming loops. And there are places where one might come away from those sorts of descriptions thinking, it doesn't matter what I do now. We've already triggered the, the release of the permafrost methane. And, and it's important to understand the science doesn't support that. The, the science just, we have measurements. We can look at the isotopic composition of methane in the atmosphere. We can figure out where, to the extent that there is methane that's accumulating, where it's coming from. And you know what? The rise in methane that we've seen over the past couple decades is coming from us, from human activity, Mm. from fossil fuel extraction, natural gas extraction, fracking, from livestock to a lesser extent. It's not coming from some unstoppable methane loop. And it's so important to distinguish between those two things, because in one case, there's no agency. There's nothing we can do. Whereas in the other case, it's 
it's us. Mm. We're the ones who are causing the increase in methane that we've actually seen. So that means our actions actually make an immediate impact. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I want to get onto El Nino. This is a weather pattern that affects predominantly the southern hemisphere. Australia is is at the centre of this. So La Nina, of course, has been the weather pattern that we've endured for the last couple of years. It's now backing off, although as I speak to you, it is a massive storm outside and raining once again. Um, but the news just in a couple of weeks ago is that El Nino which is the the hotter pattern, at least that's how it plays out here, is going to hit by the end of the year, if not as early as July. Now, what does that mean? We are going to see temperatures increase. And I think I'm reading that the temperatures are going to temporarily perhaps, but they are going to go over that 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold. Now, we're already in Australia at 1.44 uh, degrees Celsius over pre-industrial temperatures. So as I said at the outset of this interview, we're kind of like the canary down the mine shop. This is what it's going to look like, you know, going forward. Can you give us a little yeah. bit of a picture of, of of how bad things could get? And I'll just flag, of course, the last time we had those bushfires when you were here in Australia, yeah. that was not a La Nina weather pattern. It was not an El Nino either. And so right. the next round of fires are going to be happening in this El Nino weather pattern. Right. I mean, this is terrifying stuff, I think. I think the fires that we've yeah. had in the Black Summer a couple of years back, they're going to be nothing on what we're going to be seeing potentially by the end of this year. Have I got that right, Michael Mann? Well, you know, we can cross our fingers that that's, that's not true, but there's certainly the the very real possibility you know you have to think of it as the ingredients are there now whether the ingredients will create that fire depends on a, a few different circumstances the indian ocean dipole is another pattern that we talk about that is on top of el nino and that played a role during the uh, the black summer and so the indian ocean dipole um, is doing something different from what it was doing then and so that might help a little bit okay. but you're absolutely right El Ninos are hot and dry in Australia. Those are precisely the conditions you don't want to see 
when you're talking about bushfires, wildfires. And we're thrown into the mix, you know, coming off the back of La Nina, we've had this incredible amounts of rain. There's all this undergrowth. Yeah. There is so much shrubbery, you know, that, that is going to be ready to, to go up in flames. And yeah. that's adding, yeah, it's fuel to the fire, literally. No, it's, a, it's sort of a boom and bust cycle, right, where during the wet years you build up the vegetation in the dry years, that becomes fuel for those fires. And so that's exactly what you don't want to see. You don't want to see that alternation from very wet conditions to very dry conditions, from La Nina to El Nino. And that's exactly what we're seeing. That El Nino-La Nina alteration, that's riding on top of a ramp. Yes. The ramp is that Australia's getting steadily hotter and drier. A large part of it is getting drier. And then you have that, that El Nino-La Nina cycle on top of it. And so when that cycle adds more and more to that ramp, it's when you, those two things come together. With each new sort of El Nino peak, it's going to be higher up than it was because of that steady ramp. And that's what we're dealing with. What's the temperature community saying about this? Is there a lot of concern? Are there eyes on Australia watching what's going to be happening? Yeah, I hate to say that, you know, you guys are a lab experiment that we're all sort of watching to learn from, but it's a little bit like that. I've said that before. Uh, Australia, if you were going to build a continent that was most susceptible to the impacts of human-caused climate change, it would be Australia. It's centered in the, the warm, dry subtropics. Um, you know, large parts of the continent are already at the edge of sort mm -hmm. of habitability. And it doesn't take that much heating and drying to put things over the edge. And, and that's what we've seen. What we've seen take place in Australia is sort of a harbinger for what, as you said before, for what we expect to happen elsewhere. And the the reality is that terms like resilience are relevant here. I mean, Australia is going to have to basically use every trick in the rule book to find a way to be resilient in the face of the climate change that we're already committed to. Now, if we can bring those carbon emissions to zero on that schedule that we talked about, bring them halfway down by 2030 and down to net zero by 2050, there is the possibility that Australia sort of stays within our collective adaptive capacity, that we can adapt to that amount of climate change. But we go beyond that, it gets hard to see. Michael, I don't know whether this is too woo-woo for you, but I can't help but think that Mother Nature is doing its thing right now, right? It's giving Australia the nudge right when we're having this debate about whether to stop approving um, upcoming gas and oil projects or fossil fuel projects. How wonderful to drop in a El Nino event um, right when yep. we're doing all of this in a country where obviously we're one of the major fossil fuel producers. I don't know that there's not a lot of irony going on with all of that. And I think it's powerful and really quite wonderful. The way I see it and I explain it to people, Michael, is that there's, it's like we've got this shallow bowl of water. And I use this analogy to explain how to live with anxiety in, you know, in this world today. 
we have this yeah. shallow bowl of water and it is our responsibility to keep as stable as possible because, of course, as you start to tip, the water starts to slosh backwards and forwards. Right. And I see the same thing happening with the climate changes that are happening. The water is sloshing backwards and forwards and the more that it sloshes and the less stable that we can get as, as humanity, then we're going to see more earthquakes tornadoes, all of the things, and they're going to get more intense. There's going to be less of a pause between them all. It's just incredible instability. And I think that's something that a lot of people haven't really appreciated yet is that, okay, we have these massive events, but they're just going to get tight. The cycles are going to get tighter and tighter until this is what we experience. We don't have stable conditions. It's it's one or the other. It's we just, we bounce violently from one extreme to the other. That is what climate change is, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's a great analogy. And, and I have to say, but my next book is actually about the lessons we can learn from sort of past Earth history about resilience versus sort of instability. And I use the example, if you look at collapse of cultures that fell mm-hmm. because of climate-related stresses in the past, one of the things that you see is that in the analogy I use, very much like the one you're using, I use the analogy of a catamaran, which is highly stable for small variations, but goes completely unstable given a large enough, uh, Mm. you know, push. Um, So civilizations are like that. Um, We're resilient to an extent. We have mechanisms that, and the climate is like that to an extent as well, that there's a certain level of resilience. There are restoring mechanisms. There are stabilizing mechanisms to a point. That's for a small push, for a small force. You give it a large force, flips over. You get this sort of runaway behavior. And that's what we worry about. It isn't just with the climate, but it's with our societal dynamics. It also exhibits that sort of fragmentation, the polarization. And that is something we can actually temper. Um, And we will need to, if we, if we need to focus on resilience, we can't be infighting over whether our weekend is ruined thanks to Russian bot factories input. I find it rather a sad and melancholy thing when climate scientists like yourself start switching from trying to, you know, fight the carbon emissions to teaching us how to be resilient. It's almost like that's how far it's got. And, you know, the adaptation arguments and all of that kind of thing make me go, wow, this shit's now really real. You know, when this is the norm, when everybody's just talking about Ah, uh, yeah, we're going to have to get on to adaptation and resilience. We have to be so careful there, right? Because it can become, again, a crutch, it can become an excuse. Oh, well, we just need to adapt. And, and that is mm. the messaging that was used by the Scott Morrisons of the world, and it was used by our conservative politicians. We just need to be more resilient. We, we can adapt. And that sometimes is used as an excuse for business as usual. The reality is that we will. We have to prevent those changes we still can mm and adapt to those changes that are now inevitable. It's both. And one isn't going to be a substitute for the other. That's the lesson here. Hey, I um, often get asked if I've got hope. You know, I do various podcast interviews and people in the street will say, Sarah, do you, do you have hope? Yeah. And I've got to confess that I have an answer for the public forum where I, you know, come out with my whole, yeah. well, my hope's based on being activist and I turn my despair into action and, yes, and I, you know, I have all these analogies, you know, using usually yeah, yeah, yeah. a sporting analogy because that always works. I have those answers but then privately 
you know, among friends and family, I will say, I'm not sure that I do. If, you know, when I weigh it all up and I have a philosophical and spiritual approach that steps in at that point. I'm wondering if I can ask you, you know, whether you're game enough to actually say how you answer that to friends and family. You're among friends here. Yeah, so I, I consider myself sort of stubbornly optimistic, which is a, a phrase that I, I heard someone else use. And I think to not continue to find hope. I think as human beings, it's sort of part of our evolutionary machinery is to always look for hope and optimism because you want to stay alive. <laughs> you look for as living organisms, we want to stay alive. Mm. We want our our children and grandchildren to stay alive. So we look for hope, and and it's you know it, it is probably a psychological coping mechanism. At the same time, you know, we can look objectively at the evidence. I, you know, as a scientist who studies the numbers very carefully, I know the numbers. And and what they tell me is that it is still possible to prevent that catastrophic level of warming that we've been talking about, you know, a degree and a half or even where it's two degrees uh, Celsius warming of the planet, there is still a path to keeping those carbon pollution levels below the levels that commit us to that devastating level of warming. The obstacle at this point isn't, it isn't the physical climate system that is the obstacle. It isn't technological. It isn't that we don't have the technology to remake our energy systems and our other systems. Those aren't the obstacles right now. And as long as it's the case that the obstacles are political and behavioral, I refuse to accept the notion that it's not possible. Well, that well, that's hopeful in itself. Michael Mann, thank you so much for chatting with us here. Of course, you're on tour in Australia in a few weeks. I will put all the details to that Think Inc. tour in the show notes. You're touring a number of different cities across the country and everybody can come and grab you there and learn more about the new climate war and your very you. stubbornly optimistic prescription for um, going forward. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I do like Michael's stubbornly optimistic approach, but honestly, I'm not sure that it sums up the state of the global truth right now. That said, I've always argued that this is probably where true hope lies, that humans are stubbornly optimistic. And perhaps this is what we need to hang on to as we work to get more resilient in coming years. Now, at the same time, we've got to do this by being wary of the bloody climate dudes when they waltz on in and take over. And we've got to be completely alive to the fact that the distraction and the discombobulation and the deflection, it's real, and that these are the new weapons that are being used in the climate wars. When a climate issue hits headlines, we need to be on high alert to this. So the conspiracy theories, yeah, they'll surface. The destructive one line from a conservative politician Yep, it will go viral. We will be manipulated to think there is a nefarious mass out there who are going against the tide of truth, when in fact, it's probably just algorithms and bots at play. The new power, and I'm going to say this over and over again, in coming months, in coming years, is being literate to all of this. I'll leave that with you and I will see you again next week.